0: Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott.
1: Welcome to everyone listening today. God bless you all. Allow me to begin by making some comments about human reason. The book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Peter Kreeft and Ronald K. Ticelli say that the inherent structure of human reasons manifests itself in three acts of the mind. First, understanding or simple apprehension Second judging or discerning and third reasoning. These three acts of the mind are expressed in one terms, two propositions, and three arguments. Terms are clear or unclear. A term is clear if it is intelligible or unambiguous. Propositions are either true or untrue. The book Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig discusses arguments. They say a good deductive argument will be one which is formally and informally valid has true premises and whose premises are more plausible than their contradictories. Then they give a word of explanation about each of these criteria. First, a good deductive argument must be formally valid. That is to say, the conclusion must follow from the premises in accord with the rules of logic. An argument whose conclusion does not follow from the premises according to the rules of logic is said to be invalid, even though the conclusion happens to be true. Second, a good deductive argument will not only be formally valid, but also informally valid There is a multitude of fallacies in reasoning, which, while not breaking any rule of logic, disqualify an argument from being a good one. For example, reasoning in a circle or begging the question. In addition, every argument given by the mockingbird media about President Trump is disqualified because they don't address the real issue, but commit the fallacy of attacking him personally. That attack is the so-called ad hominem fallacy. Third, the premises in a good argument must be true. An argument that is both logically valid and has true premises is called a sound argument. An unsound argument is either invalid or else has a false premise. Fourth, a good argument has premises that are more plausible than their contradictories or denials. For a deductive argument to be a good one, it is not required that we have 100% certainty of the truth of the premises as we would expect in mathematics. Some of the premises in a good argument may strike us as only slightly more plausible than their denials. Other premises may seem to us highly plausible in contrast to their denials. But as long as a statement is more plausible than its negation, then one should believe it rather than its negation And so it may serve as a premise in a good deductive argument. In the context of a good deductive argument for philosophy, as opposed to mathematics, a true premise means that it is more plausible than its negation. Certainty is what most people are thinking of when they say, you can't prove that God exists. If we equate proof with 100% certainty, then I may agree with them and yet insist that there are still good deductive arguments to think it more plausible that God exists than its denial. Thus, a good deductive philosophical argument for God's existence need not make it certain that God exists. If a deductive argument is, one, logically valid, two, all the terms are clear, three, the premises are true, and four, the argument is free from logical fallacies, then the conclusion must be true. To disagree with the conclusion of any deductive argument, it must be shown that at least one of the above conditions have been violated. This is the only way to refute the conclusion of a deductive philosophical argument. Ravi Zacharias says in his book, A Shattered Visage, that the tests for truth are these, logical consistency, meaning no contradictions are allowed, Empirical adequacy, meaning the propositions must fit with the experimental data. And existential relevance, meaning it must pertain to living life. My interpretation of these three tests for truth of a statement are they must be rational, factual, and livable. In the last episode of Defending and Commending the Faith, I began to give a bird's eye view, a panoramic survey, so to speak, of the 12 points that show Christianity is true. I will go into the details of the separate points later, but here I give just an overview. Here is my plan of attack. This tenet that Christianity is true is not an unquestioned presupposition, but a hypothesis to be tested by a deductive philosophical argument. The 12 points are crucial steps in the argument. The details are to give proper warrants to the truth of the points. The first of the 12 points is truth about reality is knowable. This statement flies in the face of our postmodern generation because certain people don't believe in the absoluteness of truth. They ascribe to relativity and subjectivity of truth. I promise that we will discuss the nature of truth namely that truth is objective, absolute, and universal. That's the way mathematics, science, the medical profession, and the legal courts treat truth. In the courtroom, a witness must swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All of us demand this view of truth in virtually every area of our lives. No one wants lies from a loved one, an employer, a tax advisor, etc. If we don't establish truth in an objective, absolute, universal way, the culture will push us toward relativism of truth. Most debates between Christian and non Christian come down to the question about truth. What happens is this. On any topic of debate, after the Christian has made a substantial argument, the relativist, unable to refute the Christian's argument, can retreat to this common line of defense. He can say, with a straight face, what you say may be true for you, but not for me. Truth is relative. I don't have to submit to that because it's not my truth. What right do you have to impose your beliefs on me? You are just being judgmental and narrow minded. This ploy may give him a way out of the debate without losing face, but it is still dishonest. At this point, we will ask what is truth? How are we to know truth? Is there truth to be known? What are the methods for finding truth? I will refute the agnostic statement proposed by Immanuel Kant, which says, No one knows the truth. And the skeptical statement promoted by David Hume that encourages everyone to doubt everything. The second point of the 12 points that show Christianity is true is this. The opposite of true is false. Really, when it comes down to it, point two is obvious. It's a direct consequence of what true means. One way of articulating the law of non-contradiction, one of the fundamental laws of logic, is to say that the combination of a proposition and its negation connected by the word and is always false. In other words, the conjunction of a proposition P and its negation, not P, is false. Now we are living in a very strange world where some people assert that they believe everything is true. For instance... Religious pluralism is the view that believes all religions are true. Two religious worldviews are considered as equally valid or acceptable. Religious pluralists believe that the Muslims are right, the Buddhists are right, the Hindus are right, the Jews are right, and the Christians are right. To them, everyone. As the truth. Contrary to that statement, I will establish that some people are, in fact, wrong. For example, Christianity and Islam make mutually exclusive claims. So one or the other is wrong. Christianity believes Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross in Jerusalem, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. Leaving an empty tomb. If that is true, then Islam is false because they say Jesus didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the dead. On the other hand, if the Quran is true, then Christianity is false. Christianity and Islam cannot both be true on the topic of the cross and the resurrection. Point number three of the 12 points says, a theistic God exists. The arguments I will use will show that God is not just an impersonal force, not a human invention to fulfill our wishes, but a cause for the universe, a being beyond the universe, a being that is intelligent, powerful, powerful, moral, personal, timeless, non-spatial, immaterial, and infinite, to which we can relate. Not a God in everything, contrary to panentheism, and not a God identified with the world, contrary to pantheism. Theism is the proper term to describe such a God. Here is the amazing truth about where we are. The existence of the theistic God we expect to demonstrate is consistent with the God of the Bible. But we can discover Him from the arguments without using the Bible.
0: Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott